Five smooth stones. Any stories come to mind? Five smooth stones. If you heard the phrase giant slayer and you saw five smooth stones, you probably wouldn't think of a giant who is a giant slayer, would you? You don't think of a giant slaying somebody. You think of an underdog. Five smooth stones is about an underdog taking on a giant and coming out victorious. Well, I was going to say Lord willing, still Lord willing, but it's a pretty good chance Hornsby Baps is, as Christine said, going to step out, take on a pretty big challenge, big adventure, and uh, see if we can knock down this place, build 89 units and a church and stay together, actually have a bunch of people still here through the sojourning wilderness over at Barker and King Road and all the rest and hopefully playgroup thrives and youth ministry continues to thrive in a different location. All sorts of challenges are coming our way. So we thought in June we'd change up our sermon series and uh, get some inspiration from some people in the Old Testament. The series is called Five Smooth Stones, which will become obvious if you don't know what five smooth stones um, point us to. But people like David and Goliath, the courage of Esther, Daniel and the lion's den, Joshua crossing the Jordan. So that's what we're going to be looking at in uh, the month of June. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, if you have a Bible there, would you like to turn to it or fire up your phones? 1 Samuel 17. How many people are familiar with the story? David and Goliath. Some not so familiar? That's great because it's, it's a really cool story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm reading from verse 1. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Soko in Judah. So it's in Israel. You've got to go to the Mediterranean, head right over to the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And um, Jerusalem... You head west 55 kilometres and you hit water. You hit the Mediterranean. Halfway along that journey from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean, if you started to head straight down, you come to Soko. So uh, it's not too far, probably 30 kilometres away from Jerusalem. And Soko is a valley and on one side you've got hills and in those hills are camped the people of Israel, the soldiers of Israel. Excuse me. On the other side, you've got the soldiers of the Philistine army and their bit of a standoff happening at at the moment. Verse 4. So I'm going to skip through this story and those of us who know the story will fill in the gaps or go home and have a read of it. It's an awesome tale. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. No one knows what that means, six cubits and a span. What matters is that he was nine feet tall. That's a fair height, isn't it? Anyone know Shaquille O'Neal? Anyone know how tall he is? This is Shaquille O'Neal. He's seven foot one. Isn't that crazy? Just to put it into context, Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one. Goliath from Gath is nine foot. So standing next to Shaquille O'Neal, he makes him look like a primary schooler. 
So this man is strong. Um, If you read the story, you'll find out some detail about this nine-foot giant called Goliath. His chainmail armour weighs 57 kilograms. Anyone doing gardening, you know what 20 kilos weighs? Anyone doing some training, you know, like 20 kilo plate, that's pretty heavy. You've got three of them hanging off you. You've got three bags of cement hanging off you all the time. He's a big boy. The spearhead that he carries around and throws is seven kilograms. So this is a genuine giant of a human being. He's scary. And he sort of flaunts the scariness. Let's read from verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. It's not good when your king is dismayed and terrified, is it? Everyone's looking to the king and he's just there going, I don't know what to do. It's interesting. Here's a giant and if you read more of the words that he says, he's an accuser. He's a big bully. And he calls on people and accuses them and and belittles them. If you read your Bibles, you'll find another guy who is the original accuser. Who would that be? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. The devil, the evil one. He accuses full time. He is someone who wants to put us down. He wants to put down human beings constantly. So this giant is there in the valley of Soko and he is specialising and doing a good job in accusation and fear-mongering. I wonder if you can relate to the idea of being afraid of a giant in your life. I haven't met many people in my life who don't have something in their life they can relate to the giant that mocks them, the giant that stands there and accuses them. Sometimes the giants aren't as big as we make them out to be. <clears throat> I remember going back to grandma and grandpa's house. They've passed away now. They lived in Wavell Heights in Brisbane. And as kids, we used to go up there a couple of times a year. And uh, you knew not to go to the end of their cul-de-sac because there was a haunted house at the end of their street. And uh, it was so scary. You just knew there's just no way you're going to go down to that haunted house. And it's like a a movie, every now and then we'd see the guy who came out and he looked really scary. And I remember going back there as an adult and seeing this completely normal, unremarkable little house at the end of the street. And it's often like that as we get older, isn't it? The things that um, sent shivers down our spine and kept us up at night with nightmares just aren't so scary. But you know what's weird is when you talk to someone in their 70s and they're still just as afraid of the giant in their life. Because giants get their power through accusation and giants tend to sneak in, especially the evil one, the devil. He specialises in getting young kids and 
jumping in when an event happens in their lives, in our lives, and he will try to give meaning to that child, to me, about what that event means for me. And as a kid, it's really hard to push away something that is a lie about me. And often we make what's called agreements. There's a statement, an accusation made by the evil one and by our own thoughts. But honestly, I believe the evil one loves to do it. He says, you are this. You will never be anything less than that. And we can either reject it, which is hard as a kid, or we make an agreement and go, yes, I think I am. That is who I am. That will define who I am. I will never, ever be able to do Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like we all have stuff in our lives that most of our life, great, but there's just a part that there's a giant there that rules that domain and says, no, you have no power in this area. You gave it over many years ago and I have that territory. And the giant is the evil one. What do we do about giants in our lives? Well, I hope we can be encouraged that um, typically it's a bully and he doesn't have as much power as he thinks, the evil one. There's a nine-foot real giant in this story in the valley accusing the people of Israel and they are crumbling, they're scared, they're literally fearful. We pick up the story in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Now the the hero of the story is God. The hero of this story is God. But there's a sub-hero, and his name is David. He's ruddy and handsome. He's ruddy and handsome. And he's a good bloke at this stage. Now, David lives near Bethlehem, which is just a little bit below Jerusalem. So it is a 20-kilometre journey for David to get out to where the battle is going on. David's got a bunch of older brothers. And basically, David is doing some menial tasks. He's carrying, he's a water boy. He's carrying the food out. He's carrying supplies to his brothers, about 20k journey, and uh, also for some of the other soldiers. And On the surface, that sounds like a pretty normal thing that's going on. But if you dig into it, the story, and read the chapters around about, it's really weird what is going on here. So David's carrying supplies out to the battle lines. If you read the chapters for four, guess what's already happened to David? Prophet Samuel has come along, picked David out of a lineup and said, you... You're the one the eyes of the Lord has looked to and fro across the earth, looking for someone after his own heart. You're the one, mate. Come here, I'm going to anoint you king of Israel. Isn't that crazy? Did you know that? When David was going over 20 Ks carrying his food and supplies, he has already been anointed the king of Israel. Wow, talk about patience. Like, God, give me my destiny. Anyone know that? Anyone have a sense of call on their life? Say, give it to me. Give me. I want this thing, God. You said. You promised. King David, man, not only that, I find this just disturbing, weird. David plays a mean harp. And King Saul 
is becoming progressively a nutter. He's, through disobedience, grieved the Spirit of God, and God is drawing his presence and power and, and um, approval away from Saul. And Saul, the worst of Saul is just coming out, and Saul is actually going mad, and he has these fits of rage as he realizes he can't hold on to the kingship, to the power of leading Israel under God, because Saul was God's man, but he's losing it. And David... Young shepherd man, boy, David, who's been anointed king, is the one who plays the harp and soothes the savage animal, Saul. You imagine being David. What's he learning underneath the surface? A bit of patience. There's some stuff going on there. This is not an easy season of life for David right at the moment. So, God, what are you doing? And this is what the text says, verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand, mocking, accusing, defying the armies of the living God. That means over this, at least this 40-day period, David's going back and forward. He's anointed king of Israel. It hasn't happened yet. He knows it's his destiny. What does 40 days mean when we see it in the Bible? It's not, it could be 38, could have been 37, 41, 43. There's lots of numbers around there. It's not, it's 40 for a reason. It's a period of what? Waiting. It's a period of patience. 400 years, slaves in Egypt. How many years wandering in the desert for Moses and the people? 40 years. Jesus goes into the desert for how many days? 40 days. It's a period of waiting. It's not an indefinitely long period of waiting. It's a period that God has already ordained. Hallelujah. That's good to know. There's an end to this. It's not forever. There's a period of waiting, but there's some stuff for David to learn. I got to wondering, I wonder when he wrote Psalm 23. You know, that beautiful Psalm 23 is so gutsy. I mean, some of us will die and have someone read that psalm from this young bloke read over our ears as we go into the next life. Psalm 23. We don't know exactly when that was written, but it was from a shepherd and his name's David. David is getting the inspiration for these amazing revelations and songs that he would write and we would still read out psalms, the psalms of Israel, many of them written by David, and he is learning stuff while he's looking after sheep in the harness of obedience. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's an amazing picture. Destined to be king, sitting in the menial. Verse 23 As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So David is wondering, he's done a food run, and he's wondering, what is going to be done about this problematic Philistine? So verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
David is spending time with the master alone. Have you ever had this happen in your life when you are going through a good time with the Lord and you're spending time in his presence and you're filling your mind with stuff that Philippians 4 talks about, lovely, praiseworthy, holy, honourable, and then you go with that sort of saturating, marinating over you, presence of God, truth about who he is, who I am, where I am in the kingdom of God, and I come into a saturating experience of worldliness. Has anyone experienced that this is jarring? Yeah, as you go, whoa, but flip it over and remember times that we've all done where we haven't been doing the Philippians 4 stuff. We've been sort of marinating like slow-cooked lamb. We've been doing it in the world. We haven't been filtering it. It's just coming in. And then you go amongst the world and it's weird. It's like it didn't seem so bad. Yes? It doesn't seem so bad, maybe. And See, David, he comes into the presence of a Philistine who's giving basically the bird to the people of God and to God, and he says, Oi, that is not on, right? But everyone else is going, Oh, he does it. It's like McFly in Back to the Future. Oh, it's okay, Goliath. I know you're meanie. <laughs> it's okay. David goes, Oi, that's not on, man. No more of that. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Do you care if you hear the name of Jesus defamed? Now, there's times, heaps of times, that it's not appropriate for us to go, don't blaspheme, you know. We, we, we don't get to do that. But I'm just asking you, in your heart, is the name of Jesus precious? We want to be feeling it. We want to be feeling something grieve, grieving inside when the accuser puts down what is precious and true. And that's certainly what David is experiencing here. So verse 27, they repeated to him, David is basically saying, God deserves more glory than this. And verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. His oldest brother, Eliab, this is David's brother, Eliab, heard what David had said to the men. And he became very angry with David and said, why have you come here, you little upstart? With whom have you left those few sheep in the desert? Get it? The the older brother, those few sheep. It's not even as though you've got a lot of sheep, David think you're a great songwriter and shepherd. I know of your pride and the sin of your heart. You've come here just to watch the battle. Prophets, the Bible says, prophets are not accepted in their hometown. What did um, Jesus experience? There he is, goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and his brothers, his own family, basically say to him, think you're the Messiah, do you? Think you're the Messiah. And he's like, I am the Messiah. I'm the son of God. Often in life, you'll get a sense of call on your life and you want to step out. And I'm just giving you a heads up. The people you think are going to back you don't. Here's David saying, hey, I want to do something about this giant. And his older brother just wants to mock him and put him down. So note to self for siblings. Back your siblings. Believe in them. Don't be the, don't be the negative voice. Parents, believe in your kids. It's often, so often, the other way. So David goes to Saul, verse 32, 
and asks if he can have a shot at taking out this giant. So David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, the harp player. Look at these hands. I'll go and fight him. And so at this point, poor Saul, he's already going mad. He's got to put up with, he's like, David, I know you're a good harp player. You carry good water and food, but I didn't know you were going to be a comedian, stand-up comedian. But it's good. Look, if you're funny as well, you're good at a lot of things. Maybe he's going to be my little jester. And David's like, no, no, I'm actually serious. I'd really like to have a crack at this bloke. And Saul, verse 33, says, David, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. Go back and get some more water. You can't do it, David. Words matter in life. Words matter. God said to Adam and Eve, look, there's a tree there, don't eat any of that fruit. He could have unpacked it in more detail. He could have said, look, if you eat that, there will be a cataclysmic fall. Sin will ruin the entire universe if you eat that. So this will not be a good idea. But he just let it hang. He said, don't eat that. I'm telling you, my words matter. I breathed and spoke the universe into existence. I'm just telling you, don't eat that or you'll ruin everything. They did. Jesus is in the garden, or he's actually before the garden. He's out in the, in, uh, the wilderness, and the devil comes to him and accuses and tries to tempt him. And what does Jesus say back? Words matter. He says, man does not live on, every, on, on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Words matter matter and here David is saying to Saul David says I respect you King Saul but there are other words that mean more to me in my heart than your words amen that's what's happening here different words matter more than the words that you're hearing this is what call is about this is about finding out how to live out what God wants you to do you've got to hear the words Um, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ we need to hear the words So David has been building character, and that's what he's living out of here. That's where the courage is coming from. Years ago, I was given a book on leadership, and let me just tell you about it. Um, Cal and I were talking about it the other day, and it's, um, it's so applicable to life, this concept. It's an idea of front stage, backstage, and uh, we all have a front stage, and extroverts have a big front stage. Front stage is you see it. You, I'm up here speaking. This is my front stage. I try to polish myself up and you know, give you the best me. And then there's a curtain and then there's the backstage. And often extroverts have only a little tiny backstage. Introverts have acres back here because behind the curtain, no one else gets to see what happens back here. Only God and me. Does that make sense? Backstage... My inner world, my private life, curtain, front stage. What's weird sometimes is people that have polished, shiny front stages often have really horrible falls. And we often say, how could that have happened? They had such a shiny front stage. But most of the time what's happening is there is an over time, there is a gathering of stuff on a person's backstage and basically you get barrels of poison barrels of poison oh look i don't think it matters like 
God doesn't seem to be judging me about these barrels of poison. These poisons could be bitterness, unforgiveness, lust, anger, envy, jealousy, contempt for people. But what happens is they get too full of poison and all the yuck slime actually spills over. And while we're out here performing, people start going, look at that, what's that? Oh, it's the sewer spilling out from the backstage on the front. You know what I'm talking about? That's the negative side. But you can build into the backstage quality stuff inside our lives, in our hearts and mind. And that will do the same thing. It will affect the front stage. David, on his backstage, has been exercising faith-inspired obedience. I call it faith-inspired obedience because there's no other motivation for me to obey God on the backstage. I'm not getting any kickback. No one knows. So it's faith. Faith is trusting in stuff you don't see. It's faith-inspired obedience. It's like, God, I just want to please you, audience of one on the backstage, because you tell me the front stage is going to be better if I obey you back there. Right? When David on his own, was exercising faith-inspired obedience here, it allowed him, as a young man, to exercise faith-acquired confidence on the front stage. Faith-acquired confidence. He wasn't making it up. He'd actually learned his confidence in God because of what he'd been through on the backstage. That's the benefit of actually walking with God in an intimate relationship and learning, testing him out, seeing if it's worth obeying him. David said to Saul, verse 34, your servant was taking care of his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the, clock, from the flock. I went after him and fought him and saved it from his mouth. See, David has done stuff on the backstage. David has done scary stuff on the backstage. I got to thinking about this because a lot of us have grown up here in this story and we go, yeah, who did he? He fought something like a bear or a lion, a cougar. It was, it was a lion and a bear. And I reckon most of my life I've thought, yeah, probably an angel came and sedated the animal so that David could come and go, there, you, thunk. I want to suggest, imagine they weren't sedated. Imagine they weren't sedated. Imagine somehow with his sling, or it says actually bare hands, somehow David was able to muster the strength through the anointing of God on his life to literally take on a lion and a bear. Imagine when he comes as the ruddy, handsome little fella, he's literally saying, uh... Nine foot, mm, yeah, he doesn't scare me. Everyone else is scared. Everyone else is scared. But David's like, no, nah, I've, I've dealt with that one. You find this sometimes when people talk about sin they struggle with. And it's really weird when you think everyone struggles with that sin. Every now and then you find someone who goes, oh, I don't struggle with it so much. I, I worked that one out on the backstage. Like, Whoa, what? We're all afraid of that giant. 
Not so much me. Not saying that the giant couldn't get me in a, in a bad time, but like, no, we've actually worked that one. It's taken effort. So I started doing the maths on this thing, and I'm thinking, well, a, a heavyweight like MMA fighter is 125 kilograms. Usain Bolt runs at 40 k's an hour. So if you had the meanest human being on the planet, like they move at 40 k's an hour, and they're like a beast of a big guy, 125 kilos. If you, that's a six foot, six foot four guy. Goliath's got to be 230 kilos, I reckon. Maybe he runs at 20 k's an hour. Are you with me? 230 kgs. He's a big boy, nine foot. So I did my research. A lion, a lion, typical lion's 250 kilograms with 500 kilo jaw strength. It's not as though Goliath was going to bite. But the lion runs at 60 kilometers an hour. So the lion is like way scarier than Goliath. I'd take, the, I'd take Goliath over the lion. But as I, I did some more research and I thought, what's so scary about a big bear? You know, and then I looked up bears and bears are scary. Like the Eurasian bear that he would have been talking about is like a grizzly bear. A grizzly bear, they come 400 kilograms. They stand about 10 foot tall. And I looked up on Google and Google gives you the answer to this. How strong is a bear? And there's a video, they, they took a 300-kilogram rock. Again, weight means nothing unless you've tried to move 100 kilos. It's heavy. Like a 300-kilo rock, and they put honey and some stuff that a bear would want underneath the rock. And there's footage, I watched it, where the bear comes over in such a nonchalant way with one arm, like a one-arm bent row. He just goes, ooh. He just lifts it up and takes the honey and starts eating it. It's like, I'm a strong animal. So all that to just say, what if David actually is not so scared of Goliath? Why? Because he's taken on bigger challenges. He's taken on bigger challenges before, trusting in God's goodness and grace. Verse 38, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He gives in, put a coat of armour on him and bronze helmet on his head. And sometimes you'll feel called to do something and uh, all the well-meaning people will come around you and say, that's not how you do it. You need to do it this way. Now, don't not listen to wisdom. But sometimes you will be David and you'll go, look, I've killed a bear and a lion, and I'm confident in using my own way of trusting the Lord and my giftedness, and I've got a way I want to take on this giant. And sometimes we have to say no to the wisdom that other people tell us. At our last church, we used to give away all the money. We never had any money in the bank, and I was a pastor there leading it, and we just decided we're going to give away all our money. We just kept on giving it away. And then as we grew and grew and grew, and people came to the church who were financial experts, and they came on the board, and they used to say, oh, no, no, what we need is this much money in the bank. And I felt like little David. I said, well, I know you've got all the financial acumen in the world. You're a partner in a big accountancy firm, but that's not how we've done it. Like we've thrown and taken out giants having no money in the bank. We never have money in the bank. That's how we roll. And they went, oh, okay, and we would make our budget and make our budget. So what is that for you? Maybe God's asking you to do something. I want to encourage you to listen to what God's Spirit is saying to you. 
the standard way may not fit you. You'll find out if the giant eats you. And you can have another crack. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. Put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. So here he is, he's got five stones. Now there are five stones. Um, Why do you think he took five stones? What is the five stones? That's sort of the theme of this month. Five smooth stones. If you look it up and try to find out, there's lots of people that give different, you know, interesting reasons. One is there were four other big giant brothers, right? And so he's taking five to take them all out. The explanation, which is not guaranteed to be true, that I like the best, is it's very simple. David took five smooth stones because he thought, I might miss him four times. And that's profoundly impacting for us in our lives. What if what God calls you to do, you won't get to do it on the first stone? When I was preaching this message this morning, I looked up there and Davin Timms, the lawyer who's been working on this for over 12 years, this development. I said, how many stones have you used, Davin? He said, "Uh, 226 at last count. Right, the property development team have gone... I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't think when God calls you to do something, you go, I got one shot at this, one stone, because it's all miraculous. It's not hard work. No, it's going to take hard work. Amen? It's going to take effort to slay giants. Giants are only giants if they're real. Like if they're phony, we'll blow them away. But if they're real, we come up against big challenges. I reckon we'll have big challenges as a church. We really will. This won't be an easy season that we are going into, but we can trust the God that we serve. What is the giant that's been uh, just floating around in your head? What is it for you? Verse 45 says... David says to the Philistine, he's walking out into the valley, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. The name, it's the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Almighty, the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's our badge, that's what gives us the Sheriff's badge, it's the name of Jesus. So this text carries on. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, not putting up with it anymore. This day, prophetically, courageously, out of the secret spaces, I'm going to speak this out. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Sorry, it's a little bit M-rated. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David did what? Ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. The other Israelites, with all of their experience, sitting in the corner shaking, rocking in the corner like a baby, this young man with his confidence ran 
quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And it's very important to see that he fell face down. The giant falls down in worship, dead worship of the one true living God. There's only one God. Seriously, there's only one God. No matter how much vile attack there is on the one true living God that you come across in, in your school, in your uni, in your workplace, in, in the media, there's only one true living God, the God that Jesus pointed us to. Giants fall face down when we worship God. One of the biggest things we can ever do when we take on a giant is go with a worshipping heart. Yes? Lift up the name of Jesus as we're running to the battle. Lift up the glory of God and say, there's only one true God. If I fail, I'll fail in service of you, Lord God. I just want to give you all the glory. The giant fell down. Verse 50, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and very importantly, without a sword. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And that's sending us a message. It's God who did the, did the fighting. But David was involved, and that's the way it works, without a sword. So as a church, we're stepping out into a, a challenging time. And I want to encourage you guys in the youth service, not youth, in, in the evening service, um, lots of youth as part of our service. Um, as I've prayed over the last year, I believe the leadership, the, the, the very key leadership of this church i believe god has said to me they're coming between 16 and 20 years in the next three years it's going to be a young leadership that doesn't mean if you're older this you're not part of it right i'm not saying that but i feel like as i prayed in my quiet space god said to me the story of the loaves and fish at the very start first month i was here and she said you've got to look at who is holding loaves and fish in this church because there are leaders here you don't have to import them they're here. Others will come and they will join, but a culture will be established here. Here. And that's an exciting thing. I, I believe God is going to do something amongst young people at our church and uh, we will honour the older people because if we don't give honour, nothing good will happen. Amen? Yeah, we don't want to be a cheeky bunch of people uh, maybe in, younger in our years. Um, it's harder for me to look around this room and uh, say what I said this morning, but this morning I looked around the room and I felt confident because, you know, we have a challenge. It's the biggest challenge, I think, that any church has taken on in the Baptist history of the Baptist Union. That's what we've been told. It's the biggest development. It could all fall over. Um, but I looked around this morning and I saw people who had lost a daughter in, in, the, in, in the woman's 20s. I talk about a giant to get over. I looked around and I saw people who had watched their kids grow up and make really different decisions to what they would want and it caused a lot of grief and, and they've kept living. They get up like Rocky says, not how hard you can um, hit someone, but how, much, how many times you can get up off the, off the canvas and defeat the giant. And just all sorts of things, people who had walked through divorce, betrayal, loss of loved one. Um, they've lived 60 years of marriage. I'm looking out at people who are in their 80s. They've been in the mission field. I'm like, man, these guys have they've killed some giants. 
And, you know, I don't have to look at older people to even think that. I'm looking out now I'm seeing people who are teenagers and, and you know your story. You know if you've seen some giants fall. You know if you've had some challenges already that you think, yeah, I hope I don't have to have this many for 80 years. But our church, Hornsby Baptist Church, is filled with Davids. We are. We are filled with people who have stories to tell. And I think the trick is we've got to keep telling the stories and encourage one another as we step out and take on challenges because church will be just boring as if we don't take on challenges. Maybe they're not as big as you might think. I want to encourage you young adults, youth, dream big dreams because you've walked through harder things than what you'll do together as a church. Dream big. Why can we do it? Because we're post-Pentecost and we have the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us together, manifesting gifts as, as, as a body of Christ. And we serve each day and worship the greatest giant killer of all. His name is Jesus. And he slayed two big giants, death and sin. He defeated sin and death. No one else did, but he did. Philippians 2 told us he left heaven, came to earth, he was obedient, became a man, went to a cross, died on a cross, gave his perfect blood for our sin. And then death couldn't hold him down. He conquered the grave, he conquered sin, and he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Five smooth stones. What does it mean for you? Soberly, yet with joy, I say, let's run to the battle. Let's run to the battle. We're going to sing a song together. Let me pray as the band comes up.